Zenaida turns to Vic with absolute hatred in their eyes. And you see three new arms sprout out from the top of their shoulders. And instead of four arms, there are large chainsaw blades there instead. And each of them is about to make a swing. One at Vic, one at Deed, one at Ruthless, and one at the couch right in front of Cat. I would like each of you to make a protect roll for someone else and tell me who. I am making a protect roll for Vic. Vic, who are you making a protect roll for? Deed is going to be protecting Ruthless since they're right next to each other, I think. Uh, No. (laughs) Oh, God. Protect someone else. Don't protect me. All right. So then uh, Deed throws the shield that blocks the attack that's going to go after Cat. Okay. So Ruthless is just going to take the blow. So I have Pathetic. When you gather info, you can always ask, where's my rival? What are they doing for free? If your rival is about to suffer fatal harm or fall into eclipse, you can choose to be there and protect them regardless of circumstances. Okay. So... I'm gonna exert the will of God in this moment as, as stage manager. These three blades are now swinging very rapidly toward you all. Cat... Almost instinctively, you find yourself kind of reaching back into time as if to try to find the exact moment when none of this is supposed to happen specifically to Vic, which is now becoming so much more difficult for you to focus on. Not because, not just because a chainsaw blade is also still rapidly barreling toward you, but because there is some interference in your ability to see it because it is also being actively engaged upon by Ruthless, who is also rushing toward Vic in this moment. Vic, Deed, without even focusing on this, on the catastrophe that is rushing toward you and everybody else's attempts to be your savior, you kind of slide your shield perfectly vertically across the tile, Toward Cat. In this moment, Nina, you watch this entire thing unfold, and a part of you is going, None of this is going to happen in time. Everything is going to go poorly here, and if I can't do anything about it, I'm going to lose all of these, all of these people who matter the world to me. And just as you say that, You are the only person to notice in the heat of all of this. One more arm. Very sharp, black, bladed, thrusting appendage that is rushing past you to the right side. Whether it's going to hit Rustam or someone else, you don't know. So that that particular blade is the only one I can reach, I assume. You can respond to this in this moment. In the back of your head, you hear that voice getting louder, but not clearer. She takes it. Just steps directly into the path of it. Everyone else, as you're doing this, first Vic, turning just 
the first deed turning just a hair to decide to just kind of focus on everything else that is happening to the right side and catching Mina in the periphery. Then Ruthless turning just the same to the left to focus on Vic and catching this other thing happening in Mina's direction. And then Kat looking just over the couch, over the rift in time right in front of you, and seeing another appendage just out from the edge of Zenaida's torso rush towards something in the elevator's direction. You all see Mina shift to the right as this bladed form is about to stab Nina right in the solar plexus. Nina, you hear someone's voice. It's soft, but clearer now. What is the very first thing that your avatar tells you? Be brave. You hear that and just kind of act. You rush towards this thing and it really does hit you square in the chest. You feel immediately cold. You have a part of you is like, why on earth did I just do this? But the rest of you is like, I know why. The reason why you did it is not because you were afraid that it might hit Rasta. You did it because you were absolutely sure that it was going to hit Aisha. I didn't want that to happen. And you hear this voice go, in truth, I don't know why I ever doubted that you had it in you. I just wish it didn't take so long. And you feel in this moment your body fill with light from this, from this central wound, no longer feeling cold, but now incredibly warm and bright as something else takes over you. While that is happening, you feel as if your consciousness is somewhere else. You are in the fanciest room that you've ever seen in your life, filled with books and like a silver uh, tea tray with warm tea actually waiting there for someone and this wonderful wooden desk with these stacks of papers on it. And as you focus on these stacks of papers, you notice that each one of these sheets of paper is a single moment that you felt embarrassed or ashamed. And on the other side of this desk, someone shoves all of these reams of paper. Reams of paper so tall that they are obscuring whoever was sitting on this table. And shoving past it is your avatar. What does your avatar look like? Okay, I'm going to save this because I, I want to go back to that moment where Nina is stabbed. Mm-hmm. Because I will describe the avatar when she appears back in the room, if that's okay. Okay, so we'll just have this conversation then. So we'll have that conversation. We can do a flashback, mm-hmm. but if you want. No, no, no. Uh, yeah. So, so right now, you're, we, we can save the reveal, but you're still in this room with the avatar. So yeah, as, we'll save the reveal then. Mm-hmm, as the avatar turns to you and goes, I've been waiting here forever. I don't know what your deal is, but are you ready to make this thing happen? Yeah. Yeah, I am. Good goddamn. And they rub their hands together. And suddenly they're putting their hands on the edge of the table of the desk in front of them and leap all the way over the desk and are now running toward 
the door, and as they exit the door is the exact same moment that your form in the dream starts to physically change. So here's what happens. Mm-hmm. There's a moment when Nina is stabbed when it feels like everything stops. The dream is just shocked by this somehow and just takes a breath. And Nina says, it's okay. It doesn't hurt. And then disappears. Just gone. Everybody else sees that happen. And Aisha starts crying in the elevator. Then a disembodied voice says, be bold, be bold, but not too bold. That's advice for fairy tales. Oh, I suppose we've all played pretend as much as anyone who steals bloodstained keys to find out what's behind a mystery door. A door appears right behind the disgusting many-armed figure and opens and out steps a tall woman, much taller than Nina, wearing a dress with military-style buttons along one side, knee-length skirt with a layered tulle underskirt that makes it flare out, tall boots, gloves up to her elbows, jaunty top hat with a peacock feather, all of her clothing is glowing in bright neon colors like she is standing under a black light in a dark room. Her face is also painted with makeup that glows like her clothes. She looks almost like Nina, but older, more mature, more confident. Her smile is huge. And she says, turns out what's behind the mystery door is me and I'm not afraid of a little blood and then she her nails grow to ungodly lengths she just reaches in front of this many-armed creature and cuts every arm off I love this so much what is your avatar's name my avatar's name is Atrevida aha I love this so very very much so Atrevida reaches forward against Zenaida's form with these two clawed hands and just rends every tendril that is leaking off of Zenaida's body just to clean off the rest of her form. And it happens so suddenly and so viscerally that Zenaida, who was hovering before, is now forced to the ground. Everybody who was previously in their grasp also now falls to the ground. You notice Rustam, who was looking at, looking in the direction of where Mina would have been the entire time with like wide eyes, just having seen someone be decimated by the dream, turns to Aisha in the elevator and then turns to Atrevida and gives you a nod of assurance, as if to let you know, thank you for making sure nothing happened to her. And goes back to rushing towards those double doors on the, on the left-hand side. All of you see Zenaida's head turn 180 degrees to face this new avatar on the other side of the room. And go, where did you come from? 
I was here the whole time, baby. Of course you were. And a large, black, gloopy fist rushes towards your head. All right. So I still haven't used the ticket, or or have I used the ticket, by the way? Because... Would you like to make an action is the answer that I have to this question. Okay, so it's going to... I have a couple of different options here. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have technically already used an action. My transcendent ability, number one, the big reveal. And so appear at any point in any place at any time. Mm -hmm. So that's, I have, I have done the, I will read the text of the big reveal though, which is the moment you transcend, you may choose to immediately disappear and may reappear at any time in the place of your choosing. So that was why I reappeared behind her. Mm -hmm. And so now I can use one of my other transcendent abilities. I now have lost only mortal, but I do, I now have gained hero's destiny. You have embraced your heroic destiny. You gain increased effect when fighting your most dangerous foes. Gain plus one to you in rolling eclipse. You may only transcend when an ally suffers consequence from an action. I have already done that. And then immediately mark one transcendent ability in your playbook when you gain this ability. So I now have another transcendent ability because I had already taken the other one, but I couldn't mm-hmm. use it yet because I couldn't transcend. Mm-hmm. My other transcendent ability is, watch this. Watch this says, when you push yourself, choose one of the following additional benefits. Perform a superhuman feat of athletics. Deliver a monologue without anyone interrupting you. Wow. (laughs) So if this is the time when I absolutely need to delay this character, then I will perform a monologue. Mm -hmm. If it's not time for that yet, I'm going to hold that back. This is... This is if grand this is the enough moment time. Of truth. Okay. <laughs> so please deliver your monologue. So Atrevida basically kind of puts her hands up and is like, one second. You've been talking a lot of crap so far today, and I've had to listen to all of it. Let me tell you, not fun, deeply embarrassing for all of us, frankly. Here's the thing. Look at this poor soul over here. Points at Euphony. This this empty place in their chest. It sucks, right? It sucks to feel empty like that. And it sucks that they have been brought to this place where they feel like they have to do everything alone. Let me tell you something. It's brave to care about others when you're told to care only about yourself. It's brave to help others when you're told they don't deserve to be helped. It's brave to reach out to others for help when you're told they can only succeed alone. It's brave to live sincerely in a world of pretense and artificiality. It's brave to love others in a world of hate. It's brave to find joy in pain. It's brave to fight if you can but it's also brave to survive. Sometimes the bravest thing we can do is exist in defiance of people like you who want us to disappear. No darkness can ever be complete as long as there is one single light. Takes her top hat off, aims it like a spotlight. There is literally a light coming out of the top hat. It's like, blinded by the light. Monologue complete. 
Hope I bought enough time for Rustin to make it to the room. <laughs> a series of things happen in this moment. Oh my god, I love this so very much. So, one, it is of note that neither Euphony is in this room in this fight. When you reveal Euphony during this monologue, you actually open a very small rift window to the other side of the elevator where both Euphonies are still waiting on the other floor. When you interrupted them, essentially, they were having a conversation. Uh, the Euphony that came with you was very, like, vigorously, almost sorrowfully, shaking the other, other Euphony by the shoulders and being utterly frustrated by the fact that this other Euphony was looking at them totally expressionlessly and not understanding something that you did not hear by the time that you had uh, interrupted them. And they turn to you during this monologue like, what the hell is this rift? Where are, who are you? Where is this? How can we see and hear you? What's happening here? But they can't interrupt you because that's the thing. And that, hap that conversation happens. And then you at Revita are the first to notice because you, you summoned this rift to be able to see the thing that the euphony that was in the dream, the euphony that you all met in your respective holes starts becoming more solid and in that moment you notice a single tear roll down one of their eyes and they reach, the, they reach out for the very edges of this rift and they shout at all of you I'm so very sorry that this happened to you before the rift starts to close. And all of you get the sense in this moment that this is the purest conversation that you've ever had with Euphony in your entire life. That the thing that they're ultimately telling you is, I'm sorry that I put you in the position where this is a thing that had to happen to you. But I am so very proud of the people that you have become as a result of my folly. And then the rift just kind of closes and while that's happening you hear the strong whistling wind sound on the other side of that rift and at Ravida you notice that both of these forms just kind of click together into one solid body and just before that rift closes you see this small sliver of gold rush through the hole and it just kind of unravels into this large golden rectangle. And when you grab it, it turns into a sword made of pure light. It's like 13 feet long, as wide as your head. Not as Nina's head, as Atrevida's head. And when it forms, its blade just rushes through Zenaida's forehead. And all of the mildew and moss and weird sludge in this room kind of falls limp. You hear this intense screaming sound from right at the tip of your blade as whatever is left of Zenaida Metaxa starts like wriggling for life again. And then there is a burst of light in the room. Nina, you are the first to wake up. You are in... The room where you first found Aisha Demir. The large, boundless study in this 
apparent greenhouse surrounded by the most beautiful flowers. And in it, you notice there's really nothing special about any of these books, you know. I mean, they're books. You're so very glad that Aisha Demir is so fascinated by books so much that this would be her dreamscape. But nothing strikes you as noteworthy. And this is important because it's only when you get here that you realize, oh, right, there were books in the other place as well. That's probably what Rustam was about to do. That's why we are here. So it stands to reason that if we're in the dream, it's to do something with one of these books. But they're just books, y'all. I mean, Aisha has some good taste, but I don't know. And then you see a sliver of paper underneath a glass case start glowing with this, like, bright silver embering glow. Do you walk towards the, slight, the, the piece of paper? You walk towards it, and when you get up from the floor that you were lying on, you also realize in this moment as you're going towards here that you have the urge to reach out to your friends and go, hey, I think a thing is happening here. You are the only person in this room. I was about to ask, I'm like, wait, am I alone? Am I not alone? I... You go up to this piece of paper and you notice in this ornate glass case like seems like, that seems like it was prepared for a museum, or something like that. There is one torn sheet of composition book paper. In it, in a handwriting that you can barely make out, is a poem. And looking at it, you get the impression, just by putting two and two together in this room, Aisha wrote this poem. And it speaks very glowingly about someone who the persona of this poem considers the light of their life, the reason why they feel so motivated to be the best person that they can be. You get this vague impression. It kind of sucks because every time that we've met this guy, he's kind of been an ass. But if this is for Rustam Demir, that's kind of sweet. And when you have that thought, you hear a click from the glass case and you notice that you can, in fact, open it if you wish. She opens it. The sheet of paper rises very slowly out of the case. The edges of it just, like, letting off these beautiful slivers of silver embers. As it slides out from under the glass, and then rushes out of the door behind you at top speed. I run after it. This is clearly important. I cannot lose this thing. You have the intention to do so, and very and almost instinctively, you put your hand on the piece of paper, and it just kind of takes you throughout the dream. And you notice you are traveling the entire full length of the dream. You are literally floating up across a dream-shaped simulacra of the Earth, as this piece of paper takes you from a study in a large manor-style home in Turkey, all across the Black Sea, deep past Europe into the Atlantic, and then suddenly uh, just hovering over Cloud Harbor. The sheet of paper kind of pauses for a bit as you catch your breath at the top speed that you were just manifesting this travel at, as if the piece of paper is attempting to 
look for something in 3D space. And then it aims down and shoots toward Cloud Harbor, breaks through a window of the mirror door, and, like, hovers right in front of Aisha. Just close enough that uh, she could read what is written on this piece of paper. Everyone else, you notice, very briefly, you saw Nina was here and then Nina was not here. And then someone you've never met before in your life was here. And and stabbed Zenaida Metaxas square in the forehead with a golden sword and then disappeared again. And now Nina's back. Are we all more or less still in the exact tableau of attempting to save each other? Because yeah. things happen so fast? In the midst of being uh, like surrounded by white light, Vic and Ruth, your avatars briefly undo themselves, and then you both just kind of headbutt each other while still in movement. Briefly, or do they go away entirely? They go away entirely. You are now all untranscendent in this room. Excuse me. So we headbutt each other, which is really impressive because we're different heights in the real world. <laughs> and when this happens, Ruth like shoves Vic back and then catches them because he shoved them a little bit too hard and goes, that wasn't a kiss. And then looks over at Nina and says, Ruthless says, hi, little sister. It took you long enough. Yeah, that's okay, though. There's no rush. He realizes he's still holding Vic's hand and, like, flings it down. (laughs) Cat from behind the couch says, one rush. We really, really are going to have to do laundry after this. No. And, like, Zenaida Sludge is dripping out of her hair by this point. Mm-hmm. Okay, Nina's looking at Aisha. Is she okay? Aisha's okay. In fact, Aisha gets up off of, like, crouching in the corner of the elevator and is focusing intently on this sheet of paper in front of her and goes, Where did you find this? Uh, it was in a room full of books and flowers. You hear, like, the the kind of, like, rapid scrambling that is only, like, easily replicable in the real world by the sound of a raccoon digging in trash as Rustam Demir kind of rapidly tries to get up off the ground and rush towards the elevator to make sure that Aisha is okay. And just as he turns to you to thank you for saving her life, he looks down at the sheet of paper and goes, What? What's this doing here? Did you, did you take this with you when you got here? Or that way? How did you find this? Magic! <laughs> right, God, dream. And he looks down at it and you can see that almost imperceptibly from a great distance, but you can notice because you're very close to him, you can notice that he is in fact crying. And he turns to Aisha and goes, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I thought that work, I thought that being 
successful and having all of these things would make us all happy, would make it so that we would always be together and it kept bringing us apart and I thought that I was going to lose you. And he turns back to this, this sheet of paper that you are still holding in front of Aisha and he gently takes it from you and goes, um, a long time ago on vacation, I didn't care that you loved me as much as I loved you or wanted to love you. And you came to me and wrote this poem, this absolutely sweet thing. And I was so busy going to parties and entertaining people who didn't matter at a hotel pool that I lost this and never even cared about it. And here it was the whole time waiting for me here with you. I thought I was going to lose everything that was about you, Aisha, and I'm glad that I didn't. And he just kind of, like, curls all of himself around her with the deepest and richest of hugs and turns back to you, Nina, and gives you this very stern nod as you can see tears streaming down his face. And then... The elevator doors burst open behind you as someone has kicked them in kicked them inward. And on the other end is Euphony, now fully whole, who grabs Dreamshine Staffer number one by her collar and goes, Is everyone ready to go the fuck home now? Ruth pulls out the really ugly pocket watch that Calendron gave him and says, we'll take our own way home. Thanks. <gasps> oh, oh, you have a watch. So that means you could say, it's time to wake up. Ruth <laughs> actually smiles. Aisha and Rustam, both obviously in tears, give the most awkward laugh. And this is where we cut very slowly to our epilogue. Some time has passed since these shenanigans. When you all re-emerged from the dream, you were alerted of the weirdest occurrence that that afternoon while you were all gone, Dreamshine Technologies' new AI program that was supposed to revolutionize the way that people do public commerce activated... And there was this weird digital glitch that kind of affected people's ability to engage with most public technologies for a good 24 minutes. Traffic lights were disabled. No one could connect to the internet. Phone lines were down. It's like this big EMP had triggered everywhere. And people are noting in some conspiracy message boards that... While that was happening, a lot of people noted that they felt far more drowsy than they ever felt in their entire life, but also felt like there was this voice behind them that was telling them that they absolutely positively should not sleep under any circumstances. A couple of people, unfortunately, did in fact take this moment to take a brief nap. Many of them are now, weirdly, in the hospital with an inexplicable illness that seems to be rendering them severely comatose, even though their brain activity is actually remarkably high. 
lots of medical professionals are severely baffled by this and have since insisted as a matter of public safety that no one should interact with any Dreamshine Technologies apps or other pieces of tech that require them to be in direct physical contact or direct eye contact with those uh, techno- with those pieces of technology for large periods of time, presuming that there's some psychosomatic effect that still needs to be observed. While that's happening, Vic, you get a message from a couple of other revolutionaries that you've never really spoken to, like recent recruits who you never had the immediate opportunity to chat with, who got your number from love, and note very idly in some very cryptic texts that something really weird went down the other afternoon, and they acted on the previous information that you had given them, that there is something uniquely peculiar about the conspiracy in a way that cannot be corporeally described. Right. And took advantage of the chaos to strike some primary conspiracy-adjacent warehouses and got away with large piles of contraband, like stockpiles of weaponry, large metal caches full of books that were so very intensely banned that there are copies of books here that even you don't know the name or backstory of. Like piles of cash and gold numbering in the eight figures and have moved it to a secure location based on advice that you had given in a previous meeting a long time ago. And they just wanted to check in on you to make sure whether you are safe. I think the first thing Vic says is good job. And the next thing that they say is now the real work begins. And then like a, a date and like a date and coordinates. You, you put that in the chat and everyone like replies immediately to that coordinate message. But like there's this long row of fist emojis in the chat now. As we cut to Ruth. Monsieur and Roses is getting its window repaired. Um, I completely forgot. <laughs> we destroyed that one. <laughs> ah, but when you get there, you're like, like a part of you is like, where did the money for the window come from? And another part timer at uh, Monsieur like rushes past the counter and nudges you in the shoulder and starts pointing at the window and goes, "Hey, did you hear?" No. Of course you didn't hear. You don't pay attention to these kinds of things. Apparently. I, I just mean you don't care about pop culture stuff. I mean, Rustam Demir is paying for our window. Fuck him and his money. I mean, yeah, but also, like, he, he's never been... Have you ever seen Rustam Demir come to this shop? I don't know why he cares. This, it's funny, right? It's weird, right? He cares because I can put his fucking head through it. And maybe I will, so he can buy us another fucking window. Welcome this to Mr. Roses. This is slowly backing like? away from you <laughs> as you are taking this order. As this line of customers is forming at the counter, you see on the other end of the, of, on the other glass uh, window, 
far from the entrance, you notice Dice is knocking on the glass. Ruth is going to ignore the hell out of him. He knocks harder. He's now tapping on the whole glass with both of his hands. Good. Ruth will continue ignoring him until that fucking thing breaks. You notice Ruth sigh, and then come across to the entrance, walk in. Dice grabs, like, climbs over the counter, grabs you by your wrist, and is now dragging you to the uh, back kitchen. I bite him. He continues dragging you. I continue biting him. He like gets a badger. Into, he gets into the kitchen, closes the door, and then straightens up while your teeth are still attached to him somewhere. His arm. Mm-hmm. And he just kind of straightens up and kind of looks at you. I think about it, and then I detach my teeth from his physical being. And I say, welcome to Monsieur Roses. What is your fucking order? He wipes a bit of the, the spit and drawn blood from your bite off of his arm. And he just keeps looking at you. Like, very intensely. Ruth continues staring at him. And when this goes on for about 45 seconds, Ruth says, Do you want your stupid watch back? I can give you your stupid watch back. You say that, and he immediately responds by hugging you. Disgusting! You say that, and he hugs you even harder. Dice does not let you go. (laughs) God fucking damn it. And he just kind of sits, he just kind of takes this in for a moment, and then he whispers very softly, Thank you for putting up with all of this. Oh, so you're saying all of this is your fault? He straightens up a bit, but doesn't stop hugging you and says, Some of it? But you didn't have to... I'm just... You could have not been here anymore, and that's not what I want. So I want to fix what I did. Then he goes back to hugging you very tightly. Ruth attempts to break this really fucked up stranglehold that Calendron has on him. Give me a defy roll. Your position is desperate and your effect is limited. (laughs) Fucking hell, I only have two dice when I'm untranscended. That's a one and a four. (laughs) The more you struggle, the tighter he hugs you. Ruth finally shouts at the top of his lungs, You were dropped on your head as an infant! Loud enough for everybody in the front to hear this through the door. You hear the clattering of glass and china somewhere inside the actual sword, but you have no idea who's responsible for that. And we cut from that scene very immediately to Cat. Cat, where are you? You lost a job. (laughs) And you didn't take the new one. In her apartment, gathering up all these goddamn cards that she has amassed over the course of this adventure. Mm -hmm. Um, And she is carrying them to her kitchen and she turns on her gas burner. 
as you do that, just as just as it clicks on, you notice that all of these cards in your grasp are actively wriggling to get free of you. <laughs> and as they like successfully slide out from your fingers, they just kind of disappear into space, into like straight lines. All of them just kind of rush off in multiple directions and disappear. Except for one. Give me a one D ninety nine roll. What's a seventy two get me? This is interesting. 72. So the card that is remaining, a card that you hadn't thought about the entire time, a card that was not your concern up until this moment, until that you're now looking at it, is a card from the curtain suit. It is called The Missing Person. You recall that you had drawn this card a long time ago, before we had even gotten to this point, before Rustam Demir even announced the eye was going to be live, even before Euphony had split themselves. You drew this card and it told you what it was, but you couldn't see any of its art. Not that there was no art on the card, but it seemed remarkably curiously hazy. But now that you can look at it, you notice that there is a photo on this card. It was a photo of people that you did not know beforehand, mildly blurred out, and with an obvious cutout where someone's face was supposed to be, now being obscured by first first the shape of their head being removed, and second, this large black bar essentially censoring the fact that something had been cut out from it. And as it starts to get less blurry, you notice... You recognize one of these faces in this photo. There is a small, brown-haired, dark-skinned girl in this photo who strikes you as a very young Aisha Demir. And that's when it occurs to you. This missing person must be, and that's when the black bar kind of fades off from the photo and uh, a head kind of stitches itself into the hole where that cutout was. And you see... Rustam Demir in a purple polo and khakis on what seems to be vacation with a young Aisha, two other young female figures, and an elderly male and female figure. This photo is the first time that you've seen Rustam Demir seem goofy in your entire life. He seems like he's actually enjoying himself doing something, and he's surrounded by people who seem to be happy and comfortable and pleasant. And a part of you that you may feel ashamed of having this thought or not at your leisure is like, it'd be really nice to meet this Rustam Demir on a regular basis. This Rustam Demir seems actually nice. And then this photo, this uh, card just kind of trembles a little bit in your hand. And then you can see from the edges of it, it just kind of starts erasing from reality thread by thread, as if being literally slowly unraveled at the edges until it turns into nothingness in your hand. As this is happening, your regular newspaper delivery lands on your doorstep outside as the camera pans out of your apartment and notices that while it did not land on the headline of the front page, there is a small preamble to an entertainment section article further in the paper about 
how Somnio, which was previously in debt so severely that it may have potentially entered into insolvency, had just been bought by a mysterious benefactor and is now under renovation. As we cut to Nina Lopez, who has just been informed via email that she has lost both of her jobs. Where are you when you hear this news? Uh, she's standing at the place that she goes to think, which is at the dead end of a street in between two buildings overlooking Cloud Harbor, the water. Does any of the rest of them know that you come here to think, or is this your own personal private place? Uh, I don't think anyone knows about this. I, I, I'm trying to remember if she told Ruth about it at some point, or Kat, in one of the previous episodes, but I don't think so, because I think this is this is where she comes to be alone. Cool. Which is nice, because it means that you are going to talk to someone. In the back of your mind, almost as if there is a ledge in a space in your brain where they can sit. Atrevida appears and whispers to you, was that fun or what? It kind of was. See? And you thought that this was going to go badly. I, I mean, mean, it did go badly, but then it went okay. Exactly. And that's because of you. Well, me. I did all of the work. But if you didn't call me, I wouldn't have. You don't have a phone. (laughs) You hear a very loud gong in your head that you imagine is the sound of Atrevida flicking you on the forehead. And she says, you can call me anytime you want, silly. And I hope that you do very, very often because we have a lot of work to do. And I'm so very excited to see what you're going to do as a result. Let's go get some coffee. Works for me. And you kind of feel the sensation of Atavida kind of fading away from you in that moment, giving you back your freedom as you take this one last kind of gaze past this dead end over the remainder of this presently for the moment peaceful pleasant happy place called Cloud Harbor a place that is not the best and is sometimes the worst a place that is not as comforting or as reassuring as a lot of people tend to think such a future forward place might be. But in this moment, you feel kind of reassured by the fact that there are people like you and your friends in it. And with people like you and your friends, sometimes, maybe, dreams actually do come true. And then we cut to a warehouse on the other end of Cloud Harbor, totally empty on its base floor, But this large, very uniformly dug concrete well right in the center of it. And all the way down in that well 
80, 90, 100 feet into the earth. There are four stone chairs surrounding a large black obelisk. Nothing is in any of these chairs. But in this well, voices are speaking to each other. One voice says, we've lost one of our kin. Another says, this is quite a tragedy, but not something we are ill prepared for. A third voice says, we have not gotten all of the things that we've needed to accomplish, but there is still time yet before. And then the fourth voice interjects to say, we can bide our time for this moment. Give them their win. They've worked very eagerly for it. But we will claim these dreams soon enough. And you hear this strong, whistling wind sound. As the camera comes back up from the well, out of the warehouse, and then two blocks away, where Euphony is scribbling in a notebook, and then looks up, looks out of the window of this storefront where they're sitting, and goes, did anybody else hear that? And that's where we end Girl by Moonlight, Fractal Spire. <laughs> oh my god. This was quite a session. Thank you so very much for your patience, everyone. I'm so very glad that we got to do all of these things. How do you feel about the conclusion of the grand story of Girl by Moonlight, Fractal Spire? Good job, team. We did the thing. We waited we so long, so long to meet Atrevita. And Valerie's like, I've got my plans. I'm not going to share them with anybody. I'm just going to be a super genius. <laughs> waited the entire campaign for that moment. Mm-hmm. I hope it was worth it. <laughs> I kind of wish. Oh my God. I kind of wish that we were able to all go into like the final boss fight together with Atrevita, but I also understand why narratively Atrevita had to appear at like the last possible moment. But still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there can always be a season three, but I definitely wanted Nina to have a moment to be the sole badass in the room because that's what I feel the unlikely hero is setting up for. And I'm glad that we got that in particular because that was really cool. I got very strong Steven Universe vibes from all of that. It was really dope. Thank you, Brandon, for running a spectacular game. Mm-hmm. And thank, thank you, you Andrew, so for letting us, us play. Oh, yes, please. Everyone give your love to Andrew Gillis for making such an amazing game. And a reminder that at this point, Girl by Moonlight is very eagerly moving into its final stages. If you have not seen on Twitter, Evil Hat tweet about some of the art that is going to be in this book. Girl by Moonlight is going to be really rad. And if you are not keeping up with that and making sure that you pre-order it when it is available, please do that. Please follow Evil Hat on Twitter. Because we played one playset. There are four playsets in mm-hmm. this book. And the 
And the get, other ones are so good. You basically get four so RPGs in one. one. Yeah. This is really, I just, I can't wait for other people to experience the thing. I'm so very glad that we got an opportunity to tell this cool story with it uh, while all of this is happening. So I'm very excited for what other people can do with it and what other people think of the story that we told here. So thank you so very, very much. And this is Hopefully. just one manifestation of the way this set can work. It is still very flexible, even well beyond what we did. Yeah. I'm very hopeful that at some point, if we don't get a post-mortem just with us as the cast, I'd very much like to talk to Andrew as well about the progress of the game so you all get to learn more about uh, their process there. But that is all in the future where I cannot see. As for right now, I'd like to ask all of you lovely folks to let all of you lovely folks in chat know who you are, what you do, and where they can find you next, starting with Mark. Thanks so much for watching and listening, everybody, uh, to and for joining us for this uh, this fun narrative adventure that we went on together. Uh, telling a story together with these folks is some of the most fun that I get to have in my creative life. So I have uh, been delighted to be Mike Underwood. I publish as Michael R. Underwood. I have been Vic Sains, the Guardian, and Deed the avatar vic is they them deed is she they and they he for me next valerie i am valerie valdez and i have been nina lopez the unlikely hero and atrevida her avatar uh, she her pronouns for both i you can find me online at ValerieValdez.com. You can find me on social media as either Valerie Valdez or Valerie Valdez author. You can find me on Twitch as the kids are asleep, which is when I stream. Next, Yoi. Hello, friends in the future, and very soon goodbye, friends from the future. I remain Yoi Gawain Lin, he, they pronouns, game and fiction writer. Tonight, I have been... Possibly for the last time, maybe, maybe not, Vermilion Jingwei Ruth, the outsider, and his avatar, Ruthless, who actually love each other very, very much. But not Dice Calendron. And last but not least, Iori. Because no Iori, they, them pronouns. I have been Cat Holly the Time Traveler. You can find me at Iori Kusano on Twitter, at kusnoiori.com. And don't forget, my novella Hybrid Heart will be out at the end of March from Neon Hemlock. It has been a pleasure to play this game with my strange friends. And as for me, I have been your humble stage manager this evening, Brandon O'Brien. Pronounce he, him, or they, them. Uh, you can find me on almost all social media at The Rising Tides. I have a newsletter at brandonobrien.xyz. A reminder that... But you can support Speculate specifically by patreon.com slash speculate. And please check out the new website, again, very beautifully recreated by Michael R. Underwood, speculatesf.com, where you can now see not only a thoroughly beautiful uh, recreation of all of the uh, previous episodes that we've uh, previously hosted as we recollect our RSS feed, but now many of our series are organized by series in the videos section where you can watch the VODs that are present on the Arvin Elrond YouTube channel if you want to revisit the beauty of Fractal Spire in all of its splendor in one big lump sum whenever you're ready and you have 
a week and a half to just watch <laughs> us play a game. So please definitely check that out. And again, thank you so very much to Evil Hat for sponsoring this thing. I look very much forward to playing more beautiful Evil Hat things in the future. If you have not seen all of the cool Evil Hat things that are coming up very, very soon. Not only is Girl by Moonlight uh, about to finish its production schedule, but if you want to discover more about Blades in the Dark when Dagger Isles comes out, if you missed the Kickstarter for Apocalypse Keys and want to get your hands on that, and they just announced a very cool Aegon hack being designed by Tom Denny called Deathmatch Island, and it is wild as hell. I watched the designer and uh, Sean Nittner from Evil Hat and some other folks actually play it over on their Twitch channel, Actual Play, a couple of weeks ago, and it is amazingly chaotic if you're into some Battle Royale shenanigans, so definitely check that out as well. Uh, thank you so very much, Evil Hat, for your patronage. I hope that you won't be a stranger to us strange friends in the future. But until then, until next, we have some wonderful... Cat catastrophic story to tell for you all very, very soon. I hope that you all have a wonderful night, have a wonderful week, and sweet dreams, everybody. Good night. The theme music for Speculate is Yellow Wood by Greg's band The Road. Find out more at www.thebandtheroad.com Hi everyone. If you've enjoyed what we've been doing here on Speculate and you've been thinking to yourself, where can I get more role-playing in my life? Can I recommend arvaneleron.com, A-R-V-A-N-E-L-E-R-O-N.com, where you can check out the Curse of Strahd podcast. This, set in the world of Ravenloft, is a Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition campaign, which has been running for a long time with a similar group of players, and which has been both a lot of fun and I think you will find enjoyable. If you like it, please let us know both there and over here. You can subscribe to it on iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, and many other fine podcast providers. Thanks, and we'll see you over there.